Welcome to Oncopharm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice here at the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy at East Tennessee State University. I'm recording this uh, the second to last day of May 2019 in my office at the VA campus in Mountain Home, Tennessee. I got a couple quick updates uh, to go over. They're going to get to our, a new drug approval. Um, yesterday, the FDA approved a, an update to the labeling for gilteritinib uh, showing uh, or um, with the overall survival benefit denoted from gilteritinib in FLT3 mutated AML. Uh, lenalidomide with rituximab was approved for follicular lymphoma and Martel's lymphoma that has previously been treated. Um, that's kind of old uh, old drugs, so to speak, so I'm not going to go over those. Uh, ruxolitinib uh, was given an approval for steroid refractory graft-versus-host disease, acute graft-versus-host disease, uh, which was not surprising from talking to transplant uh, colleagues uh, at HOPA that that was their go-to drug uh, for steroid refractory GVHD. So not surprising as a non-transplant oncology pharmacist to see that, uh, um, you know, going mainstream as far as that that practice. Uh, But there was a new drug approved on May 24th, and that's what we're going to spend most of the time talking about today, and that is ALP. Elisib or Alpelisib. I think Alpelisib. That's what I'm going to say. Alpelisib uh, was FDA approved in combination with fulvestrant in postmenopausal women or men that were hormone receptor positive, HER2 unamplified, with PI3CA mutated advanced or metastatic breast cancer after progression on neuroendocrine, or not neuroendocrine, after progression uh, on endocrine treatment. There was also a companion diagnostic test to find these. Uh, PI3K mutations. Uh, this is based on the Solar One study that was published er- earlier this month in the New England Journal of Medicine. We'll go into that in a little more depth later on. First and foremost, how was the drug taken by patients? 300 milligrams by mouth once a day with food. Uh, that's because taking the drug with food increases the bioavailability by about 75% compared to taking it on an empty stomach. So it is important that it's taken with food. doesn't matter whether it's a low or high fat meal. Uh, the drug comes in 50, 150, or 200 milligram tablets, so a normal dose is going to take at least two tablets. It is a PI3 kinase inhibitor, especially the alpha isoform. In fact, it's 50 times more potent an inhibitor of the alpha isoform than others uh, alpelisib is. Now, um, PI3 kinase is a kinase that is... Gosh, it's ubiquitous in probably all cells in the human body. It's kind of like one, it's part of the mother pathway, the PI3 kinase pathway, um, and it comes from the PI3, or sorry, the PIK3CA gene, which is mutated in about 40% of hormone receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancer patients. Um, you'll notice that alpelisib ends in a sib, not a nib, so it is. Uh, a little bit different than a lot of our other tyrosine kinase inhibitors by nomenclature. There are three other PI3 kinase inhibitors on the market, copanlisib, duvelisib, and idolalisib. Uh, they're all, three of those are approved for, you know, uh, indolent hematologic conditions, copanlisibs for follicular lymphoma, duvelisibs approved for CLL and follicular lymphoma, and idolalisib, the first of these, these drugs on the market, is approved for CLL, SLL, and follicular lymphoma. Now, there are four different isoforms that we know of or that I know of for PI3 kinase. Uh, Copanlisib inhibits the alpha and delta isoforms, whereas duvelisib inhibits the delta and gamma isoforms, and idolalisib mostly the delta isoform. So this is unique 
alpelosib in that it is the first PI3 kinase inhibitor approved for a solid tumor, and it's the one that is primarily an alpha isoform inhibitor. As far as some of the other specifics of the drug, it's metabolized uh, mostly via chemical and enzymatic hydrolysis to a metabolite that has a name, BZG791, uh, and to a, quote, lesser extent by 3A4. And they say lesser extent because only 12% of the drug that's excreted is a 3A4 mediated metabolite. So it doesn't appear that uh, 3A4 inhibitors would interact with this drug. Half-life is eight to nine hours. Most of the drug, 81% of it, is eliminated in the feces, and about half of that in the feces is unchanged drug, the half being the main metabolite, and then 14% excreted in the urine. Uh, as I mentioned, um, it does need to be taken with food uh, for absorption purposes. Uh, so as we talk about drug interactions, we'll see that uh, acid-suppressive drugs uh, probably do not cause a decrease in absorption as long as patients take the drug with food. It overcomes, you do see a, a small decrease in absorption, say a 21% decrease in AUC if you take the drug with an H2RA, um, but that's if you take it with food. If you were taking alpalocyp on an empty stomach with an H2RA, it's actually a larger 30% decrease in total drug uh, bioavailability. So as long as you take the drug, as long as patients take the drug, drug with food, doesn't we don't think there'd be an interaction at least with an H2RA and probably with a PPI. Um, it is, quote, a time-dependent manner. It is a 3-4 inhibitor, although there was no change when it was given with Everolimus, say 3-4, as also a peak glycoprotein substrate. substrate. It induces 2B6, 2C9, as well as 3-4, even though it's a time-dependent inhibitor of 3-4. Another one of those confusing um, contradictions, I guess, where we like to have more data. The PI does say to avoid use with 3-4 inducers, even though only 12% of the total drug uh, I guess elimination comes via 3-4. That could be increased if the drug was taken, if alpalocyp was taken, say, rifampin or phenytoin. Uh, and because it uh, is a possible 2C9 inducer, it may decrease warfarin concentrations in INR and avoid uh, avoid use of, of 2C9 substrates with narrow therapeutic index in alpalocyp. And if you had to use it with warfarin, then you'd obviously closely monitor the INR. It is also a substrate for BCRP, which is the breast cancer resistance protein which is one of the three, I guess, largest kind of transport proteins we think of, along with P-glycoprotein and MDR, multidrug-resistant proteins. Now, the breast cancer resistance protein, BCRP, gets its name from the fact that cell lines that resistant, breast cancer cell lines resistant to chemo, had a very high concentration of these, and it appeared to efflux drugs or, or pump out drugs like doxorubicin, topotecan, and the active metabolite of irinotecan, SN38. That's where its name came from. But BCRP is uh, kind of hard to predict if, a, if an inhibitor of BCRP and a BCRP substrate are going to have problems because BCRP is located in the liver, intestines, kidneys, uh, in microvessels, the endothelial cells of the central nervous system. Uh, but the drug is, Apelosip, is a BCRP substrate. And the insert says uh, to avoid use with BRCP inhibitors. Um, because it may increase the toxicity or concentrations of apalosib. It doesn't, the PI does not list any breast cancer resistance protein inhibitors, um, but some that I've been able to find include tamoxifen. Um, not sh now this comes from an in vitro study, not an in-person study, um, but the drug is approved with fulvestrin, but 
as the drug gets in the real world, you could see someone trying to use it with tamoxifen. Maybe that would lead to more apelosive toxicity, don't know. Uh, other breast cancer resistant protein inhibitors include some TKIs like a matinib, maybe PPIs, uh, some calcineurin inhibitors, although to be honest, if you look at the IC50 values to inhibit breast cancer resistant protein, it seems like pretty high, like you need a lot of the drug. So bottom line, uns we're unsure of how clinically significant such drug interactions would be, uh, which is disconcerting to me as an oncology pharmacist who's going to get these questions and try and, and prevent these things from happening. But nonetheless, from a drug interaction profile, looks like a fairly clean drug, although there could be some issues. And if you're out there and you see someone on, uh, you know, getting off-label use of alpelosib and, and tamoxifen, be on the lookout for some increased toxicity. And if it is extreme toxicity, uh, you might have a case report on your hands. Let's move into the warnings and precautions sections and just talk about some of these big things before we go over the Solar One study. So first, the first warning precaution mentioned PI is uh, severe hypersensitivity reactions. Uh, so a grade three or four hypersensitivity reaction occurred in 0.7% of patients, which is not a large number, but it is a number that we can, we can tabulate. And that include cases of anaphylaxis and anaphylactic shock. Should those, that's something to be aware of. Uh, Severe cutaneous reactions, including Steven Johnson syndrome, 0.4%. Uh, erythema multiforme, 1.1% could also happen. But a big, big, big one, uh, and this is an on-target uh, PI3 kinase alpha isoform specific on-target toxicity. Hyperglycemia occurred in 65% of patients. Uh, grade 3 hyperglycemia, which is a fasting glucose above 250, occurred in a third. And a grade 4 which is a glucose above 500, occurred in 3.9%. There were cases of even ketoacidosis in patients. Um, and these are patients, to get on a study with alpelosib, had to have, quote, controlled type 2 diabetes and could not have type 1 diabetes. And actually, uh, it looks like they further um, amended their inclusion criteria uh, in the Solar 1 study to be a fasting glucose of less than 140 and an A1C of less than or equal to 6.5 which is pretty darn normal. It's, it's stone-cold normal as far as that A1C. So as the drug gets out into the real world and it's used in patients who look controlled but may not have A1C less than 6.5%, that hyperglycemia number probably will go up. Uh, so for the hyperglycemia, baseline fasting glucose, A1C is recommended, optimized blood glucose control for patients with diabetes prior to the drug. Uh, and then you check fasting glucose uh, every week for two weeks, then weekly for four weeks, and then, of course, A1C every three months. Uh, pneumonitis, 1.8%. Diarrhea, 58%, including a grade 3 diarrhea and 7%. Uh, the median time to onset of diarrhea was 46 days, which is a little bit longer than we think about with a lot of our oral oncolytics where the diarrhea is worse within the first couple weeks and patients develop tolerance to it. Uh, I am, uh, you know, I think obligated to remind you that idolalisib has diarrhea that's pretty common, but it happens much later. It's a median time to onset. It's months later. It's profuse, a watery diarrhea that doesn't respond to conventional anti-motility agents like loperamide, sometimes requires systemic corticosteroids. And that seems to be due to that delta uh, PI3 kinase inhibition, and it's actually a little bit of an autoimmune phenomenon um, with idolalisib is my understanding. doesn't look to be that way with alpelosib. Uh, if you go through the protocol uh, and the management criteria from that protocol in Solar One, which you can find on in the supplementary appendix and supplementary materials, 
uh, on the New England Journal of Medicine. It's treated with anti-motility agents and hydration, just basic supportive care for diarrhea. And then embryofetal, embryofetal toxicity is also listed as a warning. Okay, so on to the study that got this drug onto the market, Solar One, which was published originally on May 16th of this year, 2019, in the New England Journal of Medicine. The title is Alpalacif for PIK3CA mutated hormone receptor positive advanced breast cancer. Although they enrolled patients who were not just PIK3CA mutated, there were those who were negative enrolled. Uh, they looked originally at almost 1,500 patients, 1,442. Uh, a little over 11,000 of 1,100 of those had PI3CA testing available. So uh, of the 1,400 patients they screen, only 572 are randomized, so 808 failed screening. That's almost 56, that is 56%. That's a lot of patients they screened that were not enrolled. And the most common reason they were not enrolled is they could not uh, identify whether or not the patient had a PIK3CA uh, mutation or not, which speaks to maybe some challenges when this rolls out in the real world of getting enough tissue sample to adequately confirm or deny if they have a PI3KCA mutation. And as we'll see from the results, you do have to have the mutation for this drug uh, to work. So of the 572 patients randomized, uh, and this happened from July 2015 to July 2017, it's worth pointing out that palbociclib, the first cyclin-dependent kinase 4-6 inhibitor, was approved by the FDA in the US in February of 2015, so prior to randomization of any of these patients. Um, they were, uh, of the 500, almost 600 patients randomized, 60%, 341, had an identifiable PIK3 mutation. The other 231, or 41%, did not. Now, this is a little different than what you would expect and what the authors write in the introduction, which is 40% of these patients are expected to have a PIK3A mutation. Um, they actually found 60%, so they had a higher yield than would have been expected. Um, now, only 5 to 6% of the patients enrolled in the study had received a prior CDK4-6 inhibitor, which would be the standard of care these days for initial upfront treatment. Um, so these results maybe don't apply to patients today who are going to receive palbociclib and hormone therapy uh, or uh, ribociclib or bemocyclib plus hormone therapy very likely as their first treatment for metastatic hormone receptor positive HER2 unamplified breast cancer. Um, 60% received prior chemo and is about 50-50 those who were um, had their first progression or recurrence of disease and the other 50 uh, had their second progression of metastatic disease. The primary endpoint was progression-free survival uh, and looking at the mutated cohort, so the PI3 mutated cohort. The hazard ratio for progression-free survival was 0.65, confidence interval of 0.5 to 0.85. Um, so that's a that ends up being a median progression-free survival of 11 months versus 5.7 months, so moderate benefit, although moderate benefit in a patient population you would not see today. You would not find 500 patients for a study uh, in second-line hormone uh, receptor positive HER2 and amplified breast cancer uh, who didn't have a cyclin-dependent kinase 4-6 inhibitor. If you look in the non-mutated group, the Kathmire curves don't overlap, or they overlap completely. So really absolutely no benefit in the unmutated population. Overall survival, nothing to mention, nothing to talk about here. Uh, as far as response rate, you see 27% versus 12.8%, so you get doubling or more of overall response rates, but only one of those was a complete response. So really, uh, 
kind of what we think about with a lot of our kinase inhibitors. Uh, we're playing defense here. Um, it's a little disappointing that we're playing defense for the most part in a selected patient population where we have a mutation and are using a drug to block that mutation. Uh, so moderate benefit in a, a disease, in a patient population that's probably not applicable to today's world with significant toxicity as we're about to see. So hyperglycemia, 64% with the alpelacid fulvestrin combination compared to 10% with fulvestrin alone. Not sure I mentioned how they were randomized. They were randomized one-to-one -to, -one, uh, to alpelacid fulvestrin or fulvestrin. And that would be in a pre-CDK4-6 inhibitor, uh, kind of a reasonable treatment option for somebody who'd progressed on tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor. So a lot more hyperglycemia. And again, you know, a third of those were grade three, about 4% were grade four hyperglycemia, 58% diarrhea, 6.7% that being grade three, only 16% diarrhea with fulvestrin. Nausea, 45%, including 2.5% grade three nausea compared to just 22% with fulvestrin. Let's go through some of these other GI toxicities. So a decrease in appetite, 36% versus 11%. Vomiting, 27% versus 10%. Weight loss, 27% versus 2%. Uh, stomatitis, 25% versus 6%, and dys dysquasia, or, or altered taste, 17% versus 4%. So patients taking this drug, one out of five, one out of four, uh, kind of across the board, uh, are gonna have a decreased appetite, potentially vomit, have some mouth sores, have taste alterations, and lose weight, and maybe one and two are gonna have some significant nausea. So a lot of supportive care to go on uh, with these patients. The next, I guess, class of toxicity that I'll talk about here uh, is dermatologic. So 20% alopecia, 1 in 5, 18% puritis. Um, so quite a bit of toxicity, not uh, maybe life-threatening toxicity unless, you know, you're a patient with uncontrolled type 2 diabetes on this drug uh, because there were cases of ketoacidosis reported in, in the study. Um, I, I think the whoever's making this drug kind of understands they need to further establish a role for this. Uh, as they mentioned at the end in their discussion of this publication, uh, there is a, a protocol or a study ongoing or about to accrue called BYL, all in caps, then IEVE. So I guess that's the BELIEVE study or the BYLIEVE. But I think they mean for this to be the BELIEVE study recruiting patients who um, – same patient population as far as breast cancer, hormone receptor positive, HER2 unamplified, but who progress on or after cyclin-dependent kinase 4-6 inhibitors, which is the study that we would need probably before you would uh, consider using this um, routinely in patients with breast cancer. So that's uh, alpalocib. Um, you know, it's a new drug. It's nice to have new drugs, I guess. Um, uh, at least, you know, to have material to do a podcast. It's nice to have new drugs. Uh, ASCO 2019 is kicking off soon, so there will be some updates. Already a couple, uh, you know, moderate-sized publications coming out, uh, look to be coming out from ASCO. There were two yesterday, the New England Journal of Medicine, with Daratumab up front with uh, linalidomide and dex and transplant-ineligible multiple myeloma patients, and then venetoclax and abrutinib uh, as, as monotherapy for CLL. That's an MD Anderson phase two study with no comparator. Uh, so we may talk about those. We'll see what else comes out from ASCO, but next week we're looking at doing uh, an update of, of maybe some of the big stuff and maybe some of the under radar stuff more specific to oncology pharmacy that come out of the ASCO 2019 conference in Chicago. Go Cubs. Um, that's all I have to talk about today. Thank you for listening. 
appreciate all um, all the all the listens and downloads. I appreciate the ratings, reviews in the iTunes store. Always helpful for you to go do that. Help out the podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at FarmDeepNib. The podcast is on Twitter and Instagram uh, at the handle OncoFarmPod. Uh, appreciate uh, you listening. Uh, if you have any suggestions, questions, things you'd like to hear more about, feel free to, to reach out to me. You can find my email as someone did this week. You can find me on the social medias. Uh, and once again, until I uh, talk to you or hear from you again, remember, doses matter. Thank you.